This is American Origin Stories. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Once upon a time, a long time ago, there was a human rights movement that had been growing all over the world. It was in the colony of Vermont. It was in the first successful slave revolt in Haiti. It was happening in Mexico with the success of abolitionists who overthrew slavers. All over the world, there was an uprising against the tyranny of slavery. In Uruguay, Bolivia, Brazil, Greece, Britain, Serbia, France, Denmark, Peru, Portugal, Spain, the Catholic Church, the East India Company. Venezuela, New Zealand, Austria, Chile, Tunisia, and in the former British colonies called the Americas, where racial slavery had been the central conflict dividing the now so-called United States since their aristocratic revolution against the monarchy of England. So divided over slavery were these formerly British colonies that less than 85 years after the founding of their union, they erupted into a full-blown civil war. And in case there's any confusion about the cause, let's give the floor to the American Civil War Museum. Quote, In 1894, legendary Confederate partisan leader Colonel John S. Mosby expressed surprise at a recent speech in which the order dismissed, quote, the charge that the South went to war for slavery as a slanderous accusation. And he said, quote, I always understood that we went to war on account of the thing we quarreled with the North about. He said, I never heard of any other cause of quarrel than slavery, end quote. In contrast to the post-war efforts to downplay the significance of slavery, it dominated the thinking and the rhetoric of Southern statesmen in 1860 to 1861. Deep South states sent commissioners to the upper South states to persuade them to leave the Union, and their arguments emphasized the mortal danger that the recent election of Republican Abraham Lincoln as president posed to slavery and to white people in the South. The formal explanations that several states issued to justify secession similarly emphasized slavery. Even Virginia which seceded after war began, had formulated a list of demands that the U.S. government must meet if Virginia were to remain in the Union, all of them related to slavery and race. End quote on the Civil War Museum. 640,000 Americans gave their lives for the war between the states. Probably the least we can do is honor the cause. The Union victory was celebrated all over the world especially by abolitionists. Edouard de Laboulaye was the president of the French Anti-Slavery Society, and he was a prominent and important political thinker, a leading expert on the U.S. Constitution, and an ardent supporter of President Lincoln during the Civil War. De Laboulaye believed wholeheartedly in what he called the common law of free peoples, that every person was born to a sacred right to freedom, and he spent 
most of his career pushing for the return of democracy to France. When he witnessed the passage of America's 13th Amendment, outlawing slavery in the States, he was deeply inspired. With his friend, the sculptor Frédéric Bartholdi, in September of 1875, de Laboulay announced the project. They were going to build a statue. Its name? Liberty Enlightening the World. And the plan was for the French people to finance the statue and for the Americans to just cover the pedestal. Her form was to be modeled after Libertas, a Roman goddess, and a famous painting in which Libertas is armed for battle, guarding the gates to civilization. De Laboulay's intention for this new version of Libertas was for it to be a symbol of freedom from slavery and oppression, represented by the chain and shackles at her feet, but also to represent freedom from war and as a beacon to the whole world. So the design included a crown with seven rays representing seven seas and seven continents. In her left hand, inscribed in Roman numerals, was the date July 4, 1776, commemorating the partnership between America and France, whose support of the newly United States had been critical to overthrowing the British. The plans were for the statue to also be given to honor the late President Abraham Lincoln, who'd just been assassinated by a Confederate for proposing universal voting rights for the Americans who were now finally being released from forced labor camps. The sculptor, Frederick Bartholdi, had a design he'd been working on already for Port Said, the city at the northern terminus of the canal in Egypt. That design was called Egypt Carrying the Light to Asia, and it was in the form of a veiled Muslim peasant woman. That is Lady Liberty's original design. The statue took nine years of construction, and France sent it to us in 200 crates. This was not a straightforward gift. It was very controversial. French aristocracy and royals were deeply concerned about the consequences of calling for freedom and democracy across the globe. They were struggling with their own internal conflict between democracy and monarchy. Now, New York, prior to English colonization, had been called New Amsterdam. The original international hub, which created the foundation of diversity that became the character of Manhattan. When the British seized New Amsterdam from the Dutch, they renamed it after the Duke of York, the brother of the king. Its other name, Manhattan, is a native word. New York, the state, prior to the arrival of the settler nations, was also the home of the Haudenosaunee Confederacy one of the oldest democracies in the entire world. And that is where the Statue of Liberty landed. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. 
So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Joseph Pulitzer, the Hungarian-American creator of the Pulitzer Prize, ran a fundraising campaign to build the pedestal. Over 120,000 people gave what they could, mostly less than a dollar, and that did the trick. As it was being assembled, Lady Liberty was given another name, the New Colossus. It was given by Emma Lazarus, the writer of the lines on the bronze plaque underneath the symbol of our nation. Emma Lazarus was a Sephardic Jewish American. Her ancestors include the first 23 Portuguese Jews who arrived in New York before it was conquered by England back when it was New Amsterdam. Her family had fled Brazil to escape the Portuguese Inquisition. Emma had begun writing poetry when she was a teenager. One of her first describes the capture and death of John Wilkes Booth, that Confederate sympathizer who killed Abraham Lincoln. In her poem, she curses Booth, saying, quote, Go forth, thou shalt have here no rest again, for thy brow is marked with the brand of Cain. Referring to the biblical story, where Cain kills his brother over greed and jealousy, forgetting that indeed he was his brother's keeper. When Emma Lazarus wrote the poem under Lady Liberty in 1883, America was having another identity crisis. As Francesca Viano, the Harvard historian who studied the statue's history, writes, these, quote, were turbulent years in America. The threat of social revolution had become palpable. Just five months before the parade in New York, a rally of workers in Chicago who were striking for an eight-hour workday had become a scene of death and violence when a homemade bomb was thrown into the crowd at Haymarket Square. The subsequent trial and conviction of eight anarchists, five of whom were immigrants from Germany, served to deepen the widespread sentiment that foreign-born radicals were provoking public disorder. Discrimination on the basis of race and gender and ethnicity had long run deep in the American grain. Now prejudice against foreign workers was joining those other bigotries. She goes on. In 1865, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution had abolished slavery, yet African Americans were still profoundly marginalized. Although women had won civil constitutional rights, they were banned from voting in most states and all federal elections. The bloody Indian Wars were forcing Native Americans onto reservations. In 1882, Congress passed the Chinese Exclusion Act, imposing a 10-year moratorium on the immigration of Chinese laborers, the very first law forbidding a particular group from entering the United States. In late October 1886, a French delegation arrived in New York for the inauguration of a colossal monument. It was the tallest in the world. She goes on, New Yorkers awoke under a leaden sky. A bad start, commented the acerbic Times of London, and it was hard to disagree. A rain-drenched celebration meant no fireworks and more police. As the New York Tribune reported, among the thousands who looked on the big demonstration, there were many whose acquaintance with the American style of liberty was a matter of a few weeks or months. There were a few Bulgarians on their way back to their country to fight, if necessary, for their freedom. How their bosoms must have swelled with patriotic pride when they thought of the day when they too might have a liberty. Yonder were a dozen Russians who no longer feared the wrath of Alexander, the great white czar. There 
stood a group of anarchists and socialists, glad that they could stand up as men and say what they pleased without putting their necks in danger. She goes on. The president, Grover Cleveland, made a solemn entrance. French commentators described the American president as, quote, a bit fat, with a placid and serene figure. Local reporters described him as seeming, quote, bored but resigned, regarding with a stone stare his surroundings and showing apparently little interest in the proceedings about to begin. Yet all around there was excitement. She goes on. Cleveland was at heart an old-fashioned conservative who had little use for worker strikes or suffragette protests. In his view, a good wife was, quote, a woman who loves her husband and her country with no desire to run either. He protected American Indians as he would a species threatened with extinction. He regarded the Chinese practically banished from the United States by the Exclusion Act as impossible to assimilate into American society. Such views were then common, particularly the idea that every nation-state had the right to determine its own racial composition in order to, quote, preserve itself. It was apt, then, that in accepting the gift from France on behalf of the United States, Cleveland characterized liberty as a deity, a sentinel goddess, quote, keeping watch and ward before the gates of America, end quote. She goes on. Almost two decades after the statue was inaugurated, no less a figure than Henry James would write in his anthology The American Scene that there was an evident margin between what Americans had accomplished and what they could accomplish in the future. To James, who had spent so much of his life abroad, this margin was the very essence of the United States, a vaster lake awaiting to be illuminated. The New England poet, and inconsistent abolitionist James Russell Lowell told Emma Lazarus that her sonnet gave its subject Lady Liberty, its raison d'etre, meaning its reason for being. She retitled it The New Colossus, in reference to the Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, a mythic giant statue that once guarded the Greek islands in the turmoil that followed the death of Alexander the Great. Emma's full piece defines the new Colossus at New York Harbor, between the twin cities of New York and the former Dutch village of Brooklyn, the Dutch word for marshland. And the full sonnet goes like this, quote, Not like the brazen giant of Greek fame, with conquering limbs astride from land to land. Here at our sea-washed sunset gates shall stand a mighty woman, with a torch, whose flame is the imprisoned lightning, and her name, Mother of Exiles. From her beaconed hand glows worldwide welcome. Her mild eyes command the air-bridged harbor that twin cities frame. Keep ancient lands your storied pomp, cries she with silent lips. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. The wretched refuse of your teeming shore, send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Imagine it's a chill night on a desert plain. You're huddled near a bonfire for warmth. 
Above you looms an endless starry sky, and all around you lies a sea of land. In this void, over the crackles of the flame, we ask, could we interest you in a spot of fireside storytelling? Introducing Temujin, a Webby-nominated adaptation of Central Asian folklore, performed by an all-Asian cast, perfect for fans of The Prince of Egypt or Amadeus. The show is an intimate epic that charts the rise of Genghis Khan, as told from the perspective of his childhood friend turned mortal enemy. All five episodes of Temujin are out now, so be sure to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, or learn more at realm.fm.